Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. If you join, you'll get to listen to the podcast early. You'll get to watch my sketch comedy early, as well as experience other exclusive content. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you're looking for another way to support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. So if you're into cold brew, I highly recommend Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code LOU, that's L-O-U, and you'll get free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com. And if you use the code LOU, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off as well. All right, here we go. so happy to be joined by my next guest. He is a journalist and author of the new book, Unmasked. Please welcome Mr. Andy No. All right. There we go. Andy, thank you so much for uh, for joining me. So, you know, right right off the bat, um, you know, tell me a little bit about, about your book. What's it about? Well, Unmasked is, uh, I wrote it so the audience that I have in mind is people who may have heard about Antifa in the media, but have actually no idea what this movement or ideology is uh, actually about. And also to clear up some misconceptions that exist on both the left and the right. Um, so I dive into the history of the original Antifa and it's how it is uh, spiritually linked to the contemporary Antifa groups and how the American manifestation of Antifa is particularly virulent and violent and in my view potentially very destabilizing at least to certain parts of the United States. Um, I think the the examples of, of the riots that were carried out in dozens of cities last year ostensibly under the cause of racial justice was really um, uh, just a mask for an agenda of being, in my view, anti-American, anti-free markets, uh, anti-free expression, and of course, anti-police. And uh, the riots uh, are not without material consequence in that, in addition to um, billions of dollars in damages to the economy uh, in the context of a pandemic that has destroyed so many livelihoods, we've actually had dozens of people who were killed in the course of the riots. Uh, in, in one particular case in Portland, there was an active murder in that an Antifa militant sought out a Trump supporter and shot him dead before fleeing out of state. I guess right, right off right off the bat, the pronunciation of, of you say you say Antifa, I say Antifa. Is there a uh, you know an official way of uh, of pronouncing the word? There's no official way. Uh, Antifa say that uh, that just merely means anti-fascist. Um, but if you look at their ideology and you look at what they actually do, it's it's in my view just a a simple marketing gimmick. Um, it's been a gimmick from the very beginning when they were uh, a paramilitary group of the German Communist Party. So um, you, you can pronounce them either way. Um, uh, I, I say Antifa more, more in line with the European pronunciation since the original Antifa started in, in Europe. Mm 
And uh, we often hear so much anytime uh, Antifa is, is brought up in the United States that uh, uh, it's an idea, not an organization. And, you know, I've seen enough videos of people all dressed in black, I guess the black block. Uh, they look pretty organized when they get together and burn shit down. Uh, what, you know, what's your response to that? Uh, the, the idea versus, a, versus an organization? So that uh, was first said in part by the head of the FBI, Christopher Ray, last year. And then it was popularized, if you will, by uh, then candidate Joe Biden during a debate. And you've seen it now kind of repeated by a lot of people like Joe Bihar and others as well. The statement on its own is actually not incorrect, but it's incomplete. So in addition to being an ideology, an anti, uh, Antifa is an ideology of anarchist communism. It's also uh, a movement, and this movement uh, is made up of networks of groups and cells and individuals who mobilize and organize around the ideology. So um, just because uh, it, there is no single one Antifa capital A group, that doesn't mean that you don't treat it in the same way as, in my view, as you would other organized criminal um, uh, cells um, because they, the information and intel that they gather from one right to the next is shared in their networks, they travel. Uh, and I, uh, I cite all my evidence for this in Unmasked. You can see that, for example, during the riots that occurred in 2020, some of the people that were arrested in Kenosha, Wisconsin, came from the Pacific Northwest. They came all the way from Portland or Seattle. Some of them then went on to DC. Some of them went on to um, Louisville as well. And um, when the riots were ongoing in Portland for more than 120 days, many of the people who were arrested were from out of state. So um, it's organized. And I think people are getting caught up on the ideology thing. I think to make it maybe more, uh, to draw an analogy that people can understand, like um, if somebody says um, neo-Nazism is an ideology, and then my response is, it's just an idea, it's not a problem, I don't think people would accept that as a, a fair mm -hmm. response. Like, yeah, it's an idea that various people organize around. There are neo-Nazi and far-right extremist groups that organize around that ideology and carry out criminal acts and intimidation, harassment, and sometimes murder. So you have to think of it in that same way, which is when the times that I've had the opportunity to give testimony to either the House or the Senate, um, I always try to really explain this to the Democrats, but I'm always ignored and sometimes demonized. Yeah, some of the weirdest uh, things I remember seeing on, on Twitter where you would have, you know, blue check mark, uh, you know, very popular broadcasters and, and journalists putting uh, this meme of uh, basically so, uh, US soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy and calling them, you know, saying they were Antifa too. But in my mind, anytime that I think of Antifa, I, I always just think of images of, again, people uh, in all black basically breaking the windows of Starbucks. And for me, I don't, you know, I, I don't see the, uh, 
I don't see the connection storming the beaches of Normandy and uh, busting open a, a Starbucks or, or a Citibank. Um, what, what, why, why is that happening? I got, as far as, you know, why are people, you know, basically protecting this, uh, you know, those who hold this ideology? I, I don't, I don't get it because I, I, I remember seeing graffiti on the wall saying liberals get the bullet too. Um, and you would, th you would think that people would wake up and say, Hey, you know what, they, this, I, this ideology is not going to do us any good. It's going to actually harm us. Yeah. You raise some important points and, uh, you bring up an important question. So, um, Antifa in the United, let's just focus on the United States. They've existed since around the eighties. So they've been around for a few decades. They've been in Portland for a long time as well, but they've been on the fringes of the far left. And, Obviously, when you look at what they say, you look at their literature, you look at their actions, it's fringe and it's extreme and it's easily recognized as such. I think 2016, though, was a particular pitiful, pivotal moment for them in that it launched them from the fringe far left to, in my view, in the mainstream left, because now the entire um, American populace was being uh, told in my view, propaganda day in and day out from legacy and mainstream media and social media that Trump's election win in November 2016 was a sign of ascendant fascism and that we have to do everything we can to quote unquote resist, including violence if necessary. And that's what a lot of people did. They took to the streets to reject the results of a, a democratic legal process and to claim that Trump was illegitimate and that um, his incoming administration would turn the United States into a totalitarian fascist regime. And that's the propaganda messaging that Antifa had been saying before. And I think it, it was much less palatable before Trump was on the scene because on its face, you can recognize it for how, how outrageous it is. But now they had friends in the mainstream left and the mainstream media left who were essentially their, their mouthing their talking points. So, um, and then there are other crucial events that happened in the past four years. Um, the, after Trump's election, um, the, instead of things being tempered down after he was inaugurated beginning in 2017, the uh, rejection of his him being president just continued. And all manner of, in my view, far left extremism was being excused. I mean, there wasn't a, con uh, a universal condemnation, for example, on inauguration day in DC in 2017, when Antifa was destroying property and setting vehicles on fires. I, I, was, uh, um, I was there, yeah, I was in, I was in DC and, and I was covering it for, um, the comedy channel I used to work for, uh, We the Internet, and uh, part of me, you know, going down there was to do, you know, man on the street interviews and try to come up with comedic bits and 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 that sort of thing. And what I, you know, what I saw basically, uh, you know, on on TV because I, I didn't go down to where the actual destruction was happening, just made me so just disgusted with what was happening that I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to bring comedy uh, to this because it does seem like uh, something that that Trump unleashed and it wasn't it's not necessarily his fault was this idea of anything that is against Trump is OK. 
anybody, any, my, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So if you say that you are against Trump, you are allowed to get away with, uh, with this kind of, uh, this terrible behavior. And, you know, I was hoping that, that, uh, that would stop at some point. Um, but you know, we've had, you know, four years of it and it looks like we're gonna, we're gonna have a little bit more too. Yeah, the other component to the mainstreaming of Antifa also had to do with the media's treatment of what was then known as the alt-right movement and Richard Spencer. Just the sort of day in and day out coverage that was given to, a, in terms of absolute numbers, a very, very small number of people making Richard Spencer into a household name. And that over uh, made the threat of white nationalism kind of overblown because it was at the forefront now of everybody's minds. Trump was in office. Um, and people then began to celebrate, not just tolerate, but celebrate left-wing political violence. I think the, for example, when uh, Richard Spencer was punched in, right. in the viral video, that was celebrated pretty much universally by the mainstream left to the point that it became a meme, punch a Nazi. And at that time, uh, I was troubled by it, not because I have sympathies for Richard Spencer, but because of the implications of what that means. If you are celebrating violence against somebody because you dislike their views, there's the, the, the rationale that leads you in is you apply that, then that violence should be that anybody who expresses views that you find odious um, should be subjected to violence. And of course, we saw this label of Nazi being applied not just to Richard Spencer and those in the alt-right, but actually to anybody who was a Trump supporter or anybody who even countered and pushed back on this social justice extremism. And so um, that continued and it continued to amplify. And at this time, I was relatively early in my uh, professional career as a journalist, but I was trying to ring the alarms, particularly because I was in Portland and Portland was becoming like this staging ground for these really massive street brawls that were like really brutal. I mean, Antifa were coming in with hammers, batons, um, explosive fireworks, all these things that I found shocking, but were essentially kind of like refining their strategies for how to organize street violence. And then in 2020, they had an excuse to put all that into practice, all the years of refining that they had uh, into months and months of rioting, not just in Portland, but also in Seattle. Um, there were Antifa militant elements that were involved in the violence in Minneapolis that saw neighborhoods torched to the ground. And so, um, I document all of that in the book because it's, I mean, we are being gaslit now in that the response, the, the response from the elite chattering classes to, for example, the riot on the 6th of January was a complete 180 to their responses to ongoing riots that occurred last year in the name of Black Lives Matter or anti-fascism that were magnitudes larger. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember just going back to um, the Richard Spencer punch. Uh, I think that was part of my the disgust uh, that I that I felt in those uh, days to, uh, you know, surrounding the inauguration, where for me to 
to be somebody who had to, you know, basically go on in my little, my little bubble of Facebook and try to explain to people exactly what you said, why, um, uh, you know, hitting people because you disagree with them is not, uh, is not justifiable. Uh, and it, it did seem like a lot of people, you know, because of the guy's odious uh, ideas uh, were all about him, you know, getting punched and they were, you know, and they were totally okay with it. And I've, uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always had a sort of a, a vision of uh, free speech protections that old school ACLU would get behind. You know, the the when the organization had defended uh, neo Nazis uh, who wanted to march in, in Skokie, um, so it was. Uh, I, th I think that that was something um, that was something that, that I didn't want to see. But and also seeing beyond that, where it's like, um, you know. If if you're if it's okay to, to punch Richard Spencer because he spouts these views, what are the what are the other views that are going to be that are going to give you permission to basically you know to hit the person? And for me, as somebody who's uh, you know right of center libertarian um, and who's made you know content online for for a long time, and at, at one point my uh, the work that I was done was labeled far right. It's like hey, you're now opening up a whole you know, a whole Pandora's box here where, you know, anyone who thinks that, oh, this guy is a far right uh, creator, he can get his uh, ass kicked on the street. And uh, at the time, I remember there was a, a comedian that I knew who was, you know, basically uh, praising the person who had punched uh, Richard Spencer. And I said to him, you know, maybe if I was as big and strong as you, I would, I wouldn't mind living in a world where you could, you know, just punch somebody in the face if you, uh, if you disagree with them, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a very big, strong guy. So I, I, I want to have a culture of, uh, you know, civility where we fight with words rather than with, uh, with, uh, with literal fighting. Yeah. I mean, you're espousing the, uh, the views of the, what was considered, uh, the pillars of, pretty pretty uh, cliche views, i'm a pretty cliche right? liberal yeah when it comes to that yeah uh i think i think that that liberal aspect of the left is is moribund uh i wouldn't say dead yet but it's dying um yeah so this uh this overton window change of expansion or rather of who is an opsy i mean it i mean i ended up having to confront with this reality change when I was severely beaten by Antifa in 2019. That's probably how a lot of people at first ended up hearing about me because I was just a regional uh, journalist in the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest before then, but I was covering, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> one of the many um, protests and riots in Portland in the <coughs> June of 2019. And at that point I had written several columns and pieces for the Wall Street Journal that was shining a light on the extremism of Antifa. I mean, they were, so they were shutting down roads and police weren't interve intervening at all. And any drivers who happened to get caught up in that, even if they were like elderly people, they would attack and right. destroy the cars and pull them out and hit them. Um, so I wrote about this. I was at many of these violent demonstrations, recorded video and it, uh, it challenged some of the universal positive coverage that they were Antifa was getting in the mainstream press. So that put me uh, in their targets. And then uh, in 2019, they 
they beat me severely, uh, punched me, kicked me in the head. And uh, then when I was trying to stumble away, essentially, they were throwing all those drinks and liquids on my face. And those are some of those pictures that you may have seen where I'm just drenched in all this white stuff. Yeah. And, and now we um, live in a, now we live in a time where, you know, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, that that public humiliation that that you underwent is now uh, it's basically forever because there is footage of it. There is that that iconic picture, that uh, photo that that you uh, that, that, that you're talking about. And, and I want to I want to talk more about uh, about that uh, attack, uh, particularly. Um, but one one question that I that I do have. And I've asked it uh, online, and, and no one seems to have given me an answer. Is, uh, you know, the same people who say Antifa is an idea, or you know, Antifa or you know, anti-fascist. That's what they're all about. Has there been even like one person who considers themselves Antifa who's come up and said, "Hey, um, dr- you know, yelling at old people uh, in the middle of an intersection." Or throwing stuff at a at a car who's trying to get maneuver around a group of people who are blocking traffic, or uh, uh, you know, destroying property. That's 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 not what we're about. Don't do that because I haven't I haven't seen that. And I would think that you know you have so many people who are you know have political alliances who are so quick to say, hey, that really fucked up thing that happened. We do not endorse that. That is not who we are. But it seems like with Antifa, nobody steps up and says, hey, you know what? Burning down shit. That, that's not what we're about. So let's say in Portland, where I'm more, most familiar with some of these, the dynamics between these various radical and extreme groups on the far left. Um, the few times that uh, liberal protesters have expressed what what was their discomfort with some of the uh, really ma- uh, mass violence that was carried out by Antifa. Uh, these people were then ostracized and made to not be welcome at all in the protest movement. And in some cases, threatened, harassed and intimidated because then they're, they're called backstabbers or cop collaborating with cops, collaborating with the pigs. Um, and there's severe consequences for that. I think, but by and large, as a similar observation, as you noticed, there was not um, a pushback on the left as this violence was happening. And so last year, for example, in Portland, when we had four months of riots that were happening every day, um, some people criticized me and saying, why do you um, describe the entire thing as a riot rather than, you know, it was a very small group of people who carried out violence. Well, to me, that difference, um, that distinction didn't really matter because the violence was happening night after night after night. You knew it was going to happen, yet people still showed up to support them in one way or another, even if they weren't, even if they themselves were not violent. They could have been acting, for example, as essentially human body shields. So when the rioters were trying to burn down the federal courthouse in downtown Portland, and um, they had, they mobilized this group of, they called them wall of moms, wall of vets, wall of dads, like these ostensibly normal, peaceful looking people right at the front mm. so that it would make uh, the federal officers hesitant to use rubber bullets or tear gas or whatever. And then right behind them would be all these people hurling projectiles with slingshot, from slingshots, things like 
rocks and metal ball bearings uh, and firework explosives. And so, um, you know, I can understand if it's the first day and something like that happens, but if you're continuing to show solidarity with people who are showing that not only are they have a willingness to do violence, but they carry it out every day, then I think it's fair to lump, you know, these so-called nonviolent people with, with the violence and calling the entire thing a riot. Uh, so that, um, that's just my, one of my frustrations with uh, the lack of um, more of a mainstream left-wing pushback against what was happening. And, and again, it goes back to like what you said a moment ago, like pretty much anything and everything was being excused as long as it could be framed as being anti-Trump. And so the burning, the attempt to burn down a federal courthouse with people inside uh, was seen as legitimate because these are federal officers who um, are part of the federal government, which is under Trump. Mm -hmm. And when you were when you were attacked uh, and beaten, uh, was that the first time that you'd experienced that uh, a, a physical assault uh, from you know from that that group of people? Or had it happened before? I have been uh, criminally harassed several times before, many times. Some of it was caught on video, actually. And I, on some occasions, went on Fox News to talk about it. They, they, they escalated up. They initially were giving me warnings, like coming up to me when I was at the public events and saying, we're letting you know that you're not welcome here. And this is a warning. And I kept at that time, obviously, I knew they had the ability to be violent, but I didn't want to give into it. I, you know, I stood by my rights as um, a journalist to be able to document something that's happening in the public space, just like they have the right to um, be in the park for their gathering or whatever. Um, but they kept escalating more. So eventually it came to them actually spraying me with things. They had pepper sprayed me before, and I just kept coming back. and. Looking back, that that actually was naive because I actually could have died uh, in the 2019 beating because they gave me a, a brain hemorrhage and I was hospitalized for that. So um, I write about in the book how even I, who, who was pretty familiar with Antifa, underestimated what they're willing to do. Um, and of course, I didn't think that they would actually have their own, have the um, ability or will to, for example, seize property in the public as they did in Seattle in Chaz for three weeks last year, as they did in December, and as is currently happening in Minneapolis right now around the so-called George Floyd autonomous zone. So these are people who they openly brandish weapons, deadly weapons, including guns and rifles and knives and such. And when needed, they will kill if they feel it furthers their goal. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, you know, after, uh, because I remember the first, I think the first time I saw you speak was when you went on Joe Rogan, uh, which I think was shortly after actually the, the attack happened. Um, and, uh, you know, since, since then, how, uh, how did you, you know, protect yourself? Like, how did you, because you still would go to these, these events, right? I mean, I guess that, that's, that's what you would call them. Like, uh, how, you know, after that, I mean, what do you, what do you do to protect yourself? Um, 
so I'll speak somewhat vaguely about this because obviously talking about security, I have okay. to be careful. Um, sure, sure. But I, I've talked publicly on the record before about how people have shown up to where my family lives uh, to intimidate, to try to break into the property. Uh, I mean, I've released some of that footage before in part uh, to appeal for the public's help in trying to identify some of these people who are masked up. Mm. Like all of these incidents have been reported to Portland police. And I think there's probably more than two dozen. Um, I had to change my tactics. It became very hard for me as a journalist to be able to cover them on the ground because they were actually actively looking for me. They were so overzealous in it last year that they were, uh, on, I think on at least six occasions, they actually confronted the wrong person, somebody who vaguely looked East Asian and vaguely had my body shape. They confronted and assumed was me. So, um, you know, I, it's, uh, it's really dangerous to do this type of co coverage. And so um, I write about in the book actually and how I was able to come up with some different ways, but I was constantly having to evolve because they were catching on as well. Um, uh, unfortunately, recently though, I, I had to leave Portland altogether just because the threats were really escalating against me ahead of the book's release. It was just, I, I had already been on borrowed time. People had already made it known where I was at, where my family was at. And so I, I had to leave. And um, the city uh, of Portland was aware of all of this. Um, they really did nothing. Um, and so uh, I was kind of just on my own. And um, unfortunately, I, I've had to, for the time being, leave the U.S. Um, you know, I... I... You know, as a as a journalist, uh, I guess that the the idea, the goal is to be as objective uh, as you can be. Um, how the hell can you manage to do that when you know the group that you're covering has beaten the shit out of you? I mean, I, for me, I I, I I think it would be very hard to to separate that. Um, uh, how do how do you go about it? If you if, you know if you do, I don't know. So old school journalism is about being objective and removing oneself from the story and as well as declaring um, to your editors any possible even perceptions of conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. That type of old school journalism is has long been out the window because journalism, like uh, other disciplines in, in academe, uh, they've all been influenced and affected by critical race theory now, which um, essentially teaches journalists and reporters to be advocates for a certain political agenda, which you see reflected in the type of broadcast and print reporting being done in the US, um, which is quite, quite atrocious in, in my view. Um, I think for me, because I'm, I waver kind of between two roles. But I always make it known. So if I if I am published in the opinion section, I'm in the opinion section, and mm -hmm. I make my views known on any particular issue. For example, I have been quite vocal about my opposition to anti-foes violence extremism. So it's not like my bias is, is hidden. Uh, if I'm if I'm printed in the uh, news section, as I've as I've done for Newsweek and New York Post, um, my editors hold me to a really high standard to make sure that. Uh, my pieces don't inject my opinion in that I state the facts and I back things up with evidence. And I do that. So, um, but certainly when people ask me, I mean, I, I, the whole unmasked, I mean, even in the title itself, Inside 
Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy. I am very clearly on the line that I'm anti-Antifa, not because of just like, not because of simply a partisan difference with them, but rather um, this is a violent extremist ideology and movement that advocates for terroristic acts against citizens and the state. And um, I think, uh, I don't think it disqualifies me from covering them just because I voice opposition to that. I, mm -hmm. For example, uh, I mean, I'll, I don't think people, for example, who are against racism should then not be able to write about stories where it involves like victims of racist attacks or hate crimes or something. You know, it's kind of like, I think this should really be a baseline. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, unfortunately though, I mean, the, the media institutions are dominated by the, the left, um, pretty much everything in cultures and now at the executive level, the American government as well. So they get to define the roles. So when uh, biased left-wing journalists make mis egregious mistakes, when they show that they are not fair, when they're not balanced, uh, when they get their facts wrong, when they are dishonest, whatever, these people aren't really held to account. And quite frequently they can fail upwards, they can get promoted, they can move on to even better positions. Um, so, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a hard profession that I'm in, in that mm -hmm. being a, I'm openly conservative, being a, a writer center journalist who's open about my views, um, it's uh, colleagues don't consider me as one. And I get, I mean, the worst, the people who have speared me the most uh, after Antifa have actually been other journalists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh... With, with the with the the rise of of Antifa over the few over the last few years, I guess their their main foe, their their foil in the mainstream media has been uh, has been the Proud Boys, you know, who have been you know held up as well. I guess in Canada they're they're considered a terrorist organization apparently. Um, and I wrote for Spiked Magazine um, some months back uh, where the charges were that the Proud Boys were um, were white supremacists, and I basically. Uh, you know, took, you know, took that uh, to task and said, well, it doesn't make sense that they would be white supremacists because sure are a lot of brown and black guys and Latino guys in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the group. Um, do you have a, a relationship with, uh, with, with those guys? Uh, I mean, I know that you, you'd covered like Patriot Prayer, um, but I don't know what the, where the lines go between Proud Boy members and Patriot Prayer members and all that. I just know the Proud Boys basically for, as, you know, uh, them uh, providing security for people like Ann Coulter uh, when she was speaking on, on campuses. And it seems like any free speech event that they show up to, they're looking to march through. And uh, and if violence comes, that they're prepared, you know, to, uh, to do violence as well. You know? So my relationship with Proudboys is only to the extent that I've uh, covered them in the course of some reportings because um, many of the Antifa brawls that have happened in the Pacific Northwest have been Antifa versus Proudboys. Um, my detractors in uh, these left-wing smear merchants in the media have then uh, used that to say that uh, I'm associated, they use these type of vague terms. Uh, yeah. Recently, the, the Independent, uh, a newspaper in Britain did that. These type of vague terms that I'm associated with these groups. Like, well, what's that mean? Are you like, uh, is 
is um, is CNN associated with the terrorists? If they interview somebody who's been convicted of terroristic acts, like what's that supposed to mean? So there's a lot of innuendo. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about Proud Boys. I probably have gotten the most like, I guess, in trouble because I try to provide more nuance and in my view, accurate um, portrayal of who and what they are. Um, yeah, it, it's, think... it's, it's one of those it's one of those things that I found when I wrote that article where it's almost like, OK, I am uh, I'm not going to say I'm going to die on this hill, but I'm going to walk away with a really bad limp just trying to bring more nuance or more information to a group that's already been demonized. And it's sort of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm a, I write, I, I get to write opinions every now and then I'm not a, you know, a, a bona fide a journalist, but it's like, man, how many people are even going to, uh, you know, want to risk taking on these, uh, these topics if there, there's really no reward. It's basically you get, you know, portrayed as, as um, associated as you, as you put it, you know, with it. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, you know, for me, I'll, I'll, I stood by the truth before and I'll stand by it. So uh, Proud Boys were started in part to be like a men's, a right-wing men's drinking fraternity essentially. Um, but it was also organized in part from what I understand in response to a lot of these conservative rallies in 2015 and 2016 when, when Trump was campaigning when Trump supporters were getting really viciously beaten and law enforcement mm -hmm. either could not or would not protect. So you had people who were vulnerable to uh, attacks by far left extremists and they actually had, had no protection. They couldn't even look to police for help. I mean, you can just think of some of the videos from like Chicago and San Jose, for example, in, in 2015, 2016, even before Trump was elected. And of mm -hmm. course, that violence continued on afterwards. And so Proud Boys was organized to, in part, one of their roles was to be sort of like, I guess, volunteer security for these various conservative or right-wing events. And because Antifa came to, with the stated goal to fight, Inevitably, there were many fights, very many brutal fights, and many of them, uh, Antifa was on the sh uh, the shorter end of the stick in that they got beat up uh, in some of these brawls. Um, and uh, some of the Proud Boys have been charged or convicted, uh, pled guilty to their involvement in some of these violent uh, fights, for example, like what happened in Manhattan a couple yeah. couple years ago so um and now some of them are implicated in um the the riot that happened on the 6th of January um you know it's like that record is un undisputed I don't dispute any like um criminal complaints against them I'm not um defending the group by any means I'm just trying to set the record straight um and so that people can better understand it and also maybe properly diagnose why people feel a need to join a movement like the Proud Boys in the first place. Um, instead, we're getting sold um, by the headlines and stories. This is a neo-Nazi fascist organization who is going around looking for people of color and sexual minorities to beat up and try to kill. Actually, in the beginning of 2018, we had this hate crime panic in Portland, which I wrote about for the New York Post, where there were all these LGBT organizations and activists were saying, that they were literally Proud Boys 
patrolling the streets of Portland in trucks and in groups in attempting to kill trans people and, and kill people of color. And some of them had come out to claiming to be victims and were fundraising money off of it. And I looked into the police records. Um, most of the time, the people who said they actually contacted police did not. They were lying. These were all whisper campaign lies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that, that was all blamed on Proud Boys, for example. Um, and so, you know, I, like- I, the, I remember the, at that I remember at that time uh, when you came out uh, with that, and I think by that time you were, all, I mean, you were already a pariah, you know, you were already yes. like the, the people were, um, which, which is something else I want to talk to you about, just like how you were able to do this, uh, you know, to do with you, what you do with, with you know, this so, sort of social stigma already a, attached to you. But I, I remember, uh, you coming out with that argument, and then I think it might have been uh, it might have been K Katie Herzog. Um, I don't know if she was still with the stranger at the time, but she came out and was was like, "No, really, where you know uh, what Andy said? Where you know where is the evidence uh, for this? I'm concerned because um, I believe uh, well, Katie's gay, you're gay as well, and it's like it's something to be concerned about if this stuff is actually happening." Yeah, yeah I think uh, I was disappointed but not surprised that people in, for example, one of the uh, uh, queer organizations that I used to volunteer for in Portland had come out and held this big uh, community forum where people were so terrified about essentially lies. And my issue is that there was no independent scrutiny by anybody, by the local press, by any of these activists, by these people who were speaking on behalf of victims, unlike mm. What's the actual evidence? And then when I looked on the one police report that existed, all of the evidence suggested that this person had passed out drunk, not that they were beaten by bats, by um, um, proud boys wielding bats as they had claimed in the GoFundMe and raised thousands of dollars. Um, but I mean, it, I write about partially in a mass about this siren call of victimhood which I, I mean, even before writing about Antifa, I had been so vocally critical of. Um, it's the underpinning, um, one of the, the most important pillars of critical race theory. And it's infected like every institution. And so, I mean, now we're having some of the most privileged and powerful people in the world claiming to be victim, people like Meghan Markle and her husband. So it's, it all stems from, I think, a related ideology these people who think that because they are victims that they are then justified in either carrying out acts of violence against who they view blame for, for their grievances or, or um, excusing that violence. Yeah, I remember during the, um, the Jesse Smollett uh, hoax, right? Because I mean, that's, that's what it was when, when it, it came out that you know, the guy had made it up and orchestrated this. I said, you know, this is actually something to be happy about. We should be happy that we went one day in America without a gay black man being beaten up for being a gay black man. And we should all be happy for it. And Jussie Smollett should definitely be happy for it, that it didn't happen. It shows that it, it's sort of like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not the first one to, to say this, but it's like, wow, we've come so far where you have to create hoaxes you know like uh, where the 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 real life examples are i guess are, are so so few comparatively to where we were you know even you know 30 years ago that you got to start making uh 
making stuff up. Um, uh, recently, there's been uh, the, we, there's been a lot of talk about anti-Asian uh, hate crimes. Have you weighed in on this? Have you written anything about what's going on in particular uh, with the um, I guess the, the massage parlor and the uh, the gunmen that you know took the lives of of eight people? Yeah, I have weighed in, and normally I. Uh, like in the course of my my professional career, I almost never talk about aspects of my identity because it's just it's not really relevant. But um, it's been important for me to speak out. I think about um, the discourses that are happening uh, by commentators and and journalists and politicians regarding anti hate, um, anti Asian hate sentiment that's happening uh, in the U.S. So. If you look at the hate crime data, um, the incidents uh, affecting Asian Americans are relatively low, very small numbers, but where they are happening and where there is an interracial uh, di difference in race between victim and perpetrator, uh, overwhelmingly and disproportionately, it's being carried out by um, black offenders. And that's an uncomfortable truth for people to talk about. In fact, mm -hmm. most people aren't even aware of it. And I was very angry that it seemed like the only reason people in the past few months have been more willing to talk about this and create campaigns, bringing awareness to anti-Asian sentiment in the US is because they want to use it to further um, uh, a narrative about white supremacy or anti-Trump or anti-Trump supporters. And oftentimes it, it blows up in their face uh, because it's just, it's not true. So you have many of these incidences recently of these racist tirades and attacks that have been occurring on Asian Americans. And a lot of it's been caught on video and you'll see that the perpetrators are not white men. They're quite disproportionately black, which fits in with the data. Um, you had everybody jumping in on this narrative of the shooter in uh, Atlanta who killed eight people was a white supremacist who was motivated to kill East Asians because six of the victims have been were East Asian women. When pretty soon after that mass attack, the local investigators, as well as the head of the FBI, FBI came out to say there was no evidence to suggest this was motive at all. And in fact, based on what the uh, suspect has said. It was related to his issues with sex addiction, which he had been in treatment for in a medical setting. So, uh, and I'm also frustrated that what about the, the two other victims within the shootings who want a East Asian descent? Like, like, do they not matter in this mm. discussion? And like, again, we're missing, we're misdiagnosing what we should be having discussions about mental health and how that intersects, for example, with people's ability to access uh, firearms. Uh, another thing that people don't wanna talk about is how these so-called massage parlors are usually almost always uh, fronts for prostitution services involving migrant women. And that appears to be the case in these so-called massage parlors that were targeted by this gunman. So. You know, instead now we were, we're all talking about what 
um, people are, people are putting ideas into the what they think was in the mind of the killer when there's no evidence to support that, mm-hmm. and they try to run with the similar uh, race baiting narrative for the shooting that happened this week in Boulder, Colorado, and their only evidence initially was because of the this blurry footage that came out of the suspect being apprehended because he has light skin. Everybody assumed that he was a white supremacist or a white male. And then it turns out he's a devoutly Muslim immigrant from Syria. And so like, um, and all of all 10 of his victims were white people. Like we were all paying attention to the race of the victims in Atlanta, but do is that somehow they're not a, a way to uh, look at the attack in Boulder? I don't think so, but it's like, if we're being told constantly that race is the, um, the, the prism for how you have to analyze all these issues and be consistent, do it. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't like, I don't like how the media is making all of us, not just more polarized, but also more stupid. And, um, these people who are spreading all these lies about these mass shootings on social media in viral posts and, and comments and all that, they're never held account for what they do to right. mislead and radicalize the public. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it about, you know, the stupidity of it, because it, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, back in uh, back in college, where if I have like a if I had like a paper due the next day and I hadn't done any work on it. So it's like, OK, and I was an English, uh, basically an English major. I was like, all right, I guess I could analyze this story through the prism of Marxist feminism and, you know, bang out, you know, five pages and I hand it in. That would be like a B minus paper. And it seems like a similar thing is going on with every single thing that happens where it needs to be uh, needs to be seen through the prism of white supremacy or at the or actually it's not even that it's the root cause must be white supremacy. So whatever mental gymnastics we need to do, they need to be done in order for this to be to be white supremacy. Um, and you know, you see, I'm, I'm I live in New York, so uh, the the amount of hate crimes perpetrated against against Jewish people here is insane, and especially in the um, in the uh, Orthodox Brooklyn, yeah, Hasidic community. And you see the you see. Um, you know, Orthodox Jews walking on the, you know, on the street being attacked by, hey, by young black kids, you know, and it's like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, that's not white supremacy. You know, that's something else. That's something evil that's going on. It's a different type of evil, but it's, but it's happening. So I just, I, maybe you could, you know, provide more insight into this. Yeah, yeah. If I could weigh in on that particular thing, I was so also very disgusted about the, the way that the, anti-Semitic hate crimes that were happening many times caught on video in New York City were were being ignored because the offenders happened to be people who are Black Americans. And it, it doesn't like, it doesn't just end with like uh, racist tirades that like, I mean, in, in Jersey City, there was a, a, a Black nationalist couple who went on a shooting at a synagogue, synagogue and killed people. And if you look at the ideologies uh, that that they had espoused, it was um, blaming Jews for gentrification, claiming that they were, uh, you know, using a lot of these historic anti-Semitic tropes around money and all that. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to blame any particular group for 
hate crimes and stigmatizing the entire group that's a wrong like we recognize that as a wrong thing to do applied obviously to black people or to muslims whatever what why does that basic human i don't not, i wouldn't even call it courtesy this sort of just recognizing humanity of other people like why does that not apply to whites and i don't i i think that all these um really anti-white uh, narratives and rhetorics that are being celebrated in mainstream, um, this is this is going to provoke a reaction. I mean, if you look at um, how a lot of these uh, far-right white nationalists or white identity groups organize, they organize around their grievances because of what they see of these people saying about what they perceive about their people, whatever. So it's like these so-called racial justice activists, they don't even recognize their role, role in radicalizing, creating um, extremists. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a, a recent, I guess, uh, digital run-in with a, uh, uh, I guess he's an, I guess he's a neo-Nazi. Um, I've, I've, I've started posting stuff on minds.com uh, because it's just another outlet and putting my stuff out there. And I put a new video that I made called the uh, woke Godzilla. So you guys definitely go check that out. Um, and some dude like, Fuhrer love or I don't know what the fuck he, what, what his name was he was like uh, he was calling me uh, he said oh Perez obvious Sephardic Jew trying to get you know trying to uh, you know infiltrate and blah 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 and I and I almost couldn't believe that 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 this person exists like this is a, a, a granted they were anonymous on a uh, you know on a you know on a web platform um, but yeah, the, the idea that that we would give, you know, the idea that we're giving assholes like that even a modicum of uh, of ammunition for recruitment, I just don't know why why we would uh, allow things to um, to to go that way. Um, it's uh, I, I don't need to be right on Twitter, you know. I, I the idea of like oh another uh, you know bet you ten dollars it's a white guy and blah 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 like I don't need to be right about something like that. And it seems like a lot of people, I don't know, they, they want to be right on Twitter as opposed to just uh, having all of the facts straight. Yeah, I do think, I think we should stop for a minute to reflect on like how sick it is that so many people, uh, public figures, their level of rage or disgust over mass killings, tragedies, terrorist attacks, uh, varies depending on the race of the perpetrator mm -hmm. and also the race of the victim like that is that is a very anti-human position and so um but uh yeah and and these similar impulses are also found in antifa by the way so for example um yeah they they say they fight against like anti-semitic uh hate crimes because that is a sign of fascist beliefs, right? They have absolutely nothing to say when a perpetrator is um, affiliated with like black Hebrew Israelites or some other black nationalist ideology. They have absolutely nothing to say. They ignore it, they're silent. Well, I guess, uh, I guess one of the, you know, one of the uh, perks of not having a, you know, centralized organization is that you don't have to uh, give a a press release for any time something, anytime a narrative doesn't go your way, you know, it's like you could just kind of remain, um, remain silent on it. 
Um, what, you know, you have this book uh, that's out unmasked. Uh, are you done with, with Antifa? Like, are, have you, uh, are, is there still more work to be done there for you? Like, I mean, you've been, you've been doing it for how many, you know, for so many years, you've obviously, you know, suffered because of it. Um, you know, what, what are your plans for the future? Uh, the work is not done, unfortunately. I would like to move on to another beat. I mean, before I was writing about Antifa, I was writing about hate crime hoaxes. So again, topics that make me very unpopular. But uh, the Antifa threat in the United States is not going away. In fact, uh, riots have continued to happen in Portland ever since Biden was elected. And I remember a lot of people were really surprised. They were like, why are Antifa destroying the headquarters of the Democrat Party? Why? why was the National Guard activated after Biden was elected in, in Portland? And it's like, well, read my book and you understand these are people who are calling for the abolishment in the United States. They don't recognize any American government. In fact, if you look at their banners, they say like, we don't want Biden, we want revenge. I mean, it's an image of a Kalashnikov rifle. Um, right now, I see a lot of online salivating from militant Antifa groups over what they view as another round of rioting that they can do if uh, Derek Chauvin is not convicted on some of these more serious charges in Minneapolis. And I mean, based on you know what I've read from those who are familiar with the law, these are charges that are likely not going to hold in court. So, um, you know, we, and as the months get warmer, you're going to see more militant activism on the streets. And I think Portland, well, so I, I'm currently in the, England right now and it, I, this was a very uh, bizarre stroke of coincidence, but um, rioting recently broke out last weekend in Bristol um, and the protests in, in Britain don't normally become violent, but what happened in Bristol last weekend, it looked like Portland, like people were setting fires to police vehicles they nearly seized the police station in the city center, smashing windows, um, severely injured the police officers there. Police were just completely overwhelmed. You know, they don't have tear gas. They don't have um, the same type of tools that American police do. And I'm seeing this Antifa element in that organizing there. And they're using a lot of the same tactics that Portland Antifa groups are doing, for example, really strategically using social media really well to get the message out there ASAP so that their comrades come and give them you know, additional reinforcements and numbers or supplies. Um, we're gonna see the lessons learned by Antifa from Portland applied, I'm sure, in Minneapolis later on this year and other cities. Like, uh, I mean, when the extremists in Minneapolis last year took over one of the precincts um, in Minneapolis and burnt it to the ground, there was an after action report that was written by one of these so-called Antifa think tanks, reports on how, what was so successful about that day? What did we do wrong? And how do we repeat these same actions? And these similar things were tried in Portland, for example, when um, more than a dozen, dozen times they set fire to police stations in Portland that were fortunately put out right away. You can see like it, what happens in one city involving militant organizing doesn't stay there the this information is shared in their networks and i think uh with, with the derek uh, chauvin uh case uh like you said you, you think that you know uh, 
when the trial starts and uh, there are going to be a lot of people who are very, very upset by the results of the trial. And I think there's something to be said with, you know, this uh, kind of Twitter way of looking at the world where it's you jump on the narrative that you want, right? And then when the when the thing actually goes to trial, then you get upset with the results, you know, with the, you know, uh, with the jury's uh, verdict on it. And it's like, but if you did the work at the beginning, if you didn't jump to conclusions, if you actually looked at, okay, what actually happened? Is it, is it a lot more complex than the narrative that I want to put out there? Okay, now I understand why it went the way that it, the way that it did. Um, and so I think that's a real, a real danger that you know I've been seeing. We've been seeing for years, but in particular over the uh, the last few weeks, just like one after the other of you know pushing a narrative and then being shown that that narrative is incorrect, and then okay, let's just move on to the next thing. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's it 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 doesn't you know bode well for our for our future if that's the way things are going to go. Exactly. And, you know, you can look back into how the, what, what we learned in the various court hearings and investigations into the, the shooting and killing of Michael Brown. This whole hands up, don't shoot thing was complete bullshit. And even though this DOJ put out very extensive um, report about all the evidence that exonerated um, that officer and that in, in, um, in that killing, um, people still there, there was rioting in Ferguson after um, uh, after the, that officer wasn't indicted on those charges. And we still hear to this day, hands up, don't shoot at these BLM anti-fair protests. Michael Brown's name is still repeated, even though he was the one who was the violent aggressor. And so, it, you know, with these martyrs that they pick, it doesn't matter if they are actually the violent criminals, if the evidence shows that um, what matters is the narrative you know, it's like everything else is just um, just a detail that can be ignored or not. And um, the press, which should be working to dispel misconceptions, particularly misconceptions that can lead to people getting killed, they're not doing it. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was George Carlin who said he leaves symbols to the symbol-minded, and I feel like that's um, that's a lot of what's happening here. Where it's like, how could um, how can so-and-so, how can we use this to be a symbol regardless of what the actual uh, truth uh, truth was behind it? But um, uh, Andy, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Um, your book is Unmasked. I think it's available everywhere except in Portland. Um, or there might be a, there might be a few underground uh, bookstores um, uh, carrying it. Um, uh, where, where else can uh, people check out your work? Oh, um, my website is uh, andy ngo.com um if people want to support me monthly they can join me on locals or patreon uh i'm an primarily an independent journalist and so um you know i really have to rely on the help of people who who like my work and so uh you can join me that way and of course as you said it's available wherever books are sold online <laughs> Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and go ahead and support my sponsors. Black Organic Cold Brew, head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use the promo code LU for free shipping. And if you head over to Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com and use the promo code LU 
you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off. All right, later.